Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine. It's just me today. I have to say, it's a little weird without Barbara and Tiffany, but our schedules have just been nuts. First, we were in Salt Lake City for IAFP, and now I'm in Chicago with our producer and director of sales, Adam, attending IFT. So we're practicing mad flexibility skills, <laughs> but we'll all be back together again for the next episode. As in all things, disruption allows for innovation. So this is the first episode that's been recorded completely on the road. So that's new and kind of fun. Adam's nodding his head, you know, helps, helps to be here with him and know that I'm not completely alone. So, all right. We had such a great time at IAFP as always. We especially want to thank everyone who stopped by to say hi, even if it was, love the podcast, as you walked by. So I do want to give a special shout out to Craig Murphy, regional QA manager at Saputo Cheese. Hey, Craig, thanks for sending your associate Victoria by to see us. And we're sorry we didn't have any merch to send, to send home to you. Hopefully next time. As I said, a lot of you came by the booth at IAFP and, and again here at IFT. And it makes it very real for us that we're creating community with this podcast. And you, dear listener, are at the center of it. So please continue to reach out and continue to engage with us in whatever way you're most comfortable. It's really hard to sum up a conference as large and important as IAFP. It's just a few days but man, there is a lot packed in there. Certainly a highlight for us at Food Safety Magazine was the attention that our Food Safety Culture ebook received. If you haven't already downloaded your copy, do it now. You can find that at go.foodsafetymagazine.com culture. Barbara shared with me that one of the main takeaways for her this year was what she saw as increased engagement with industry at all levels from federal and state agencies. Also more willingness to share data and best practices, which she sees as a real testament to the leadership at these organizations and their commitment to food safety. Speaking of leadership at federal agencies, this brings me back to this episode. I can't believe it, but I haven't told you anything about what you're gonna hear. We were able to record people from our booth at IAFP, but it turned out a little different than what we did at the Food Safety Summit. You know, we bring our recording equipment, but we really don't know what's going to happen. So it's kind of adventures in podcasting. So thanks for joining in on all the fun. What did happen was that we sat down with Carmen Rotenberg and Paul Kicker from FSIS. Carmen is Acting Deputy Undersecretary of USDA FSIS and Permanent Administrator of FSIS, and Paul Kicker is Deputy Administrator of FSIS. We also had a conversation with Will Daniels, President of the Produce Division at IEH Laboratories and Consulting Group. Many of you may remember that Will was also our guest on episode 15 of the podcast, and of course, most impressive, Will's a member of the Food Safety Magazine Editorial Advisory Board. We talked with Tim Stubbs, Vice President of Product Research and Food Safety at the National Dairy Council, and of course, most impressively, Tim is the newest member of the Food Safety Magazine Editorial Advisory Board. So to get a break from all this noise and activity. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dive into those interviews now. 
All right, so welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us your role and what you do. Uh, okay, my name is Tim Stubbs and I'm the Vice President of Food Safety for the National Dairy Council and the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy. And what that really means is I work with all of the major dairy companies and get them to work together. They volunteer their experts and their vice presidents. We teach classes, we write guides. Um, I have a Listeria Research Consortium that I've got an industry to fund, and then we do a lot of great work at a number of major universities. Okay, all right. So you work with a, a lot of different food technologies? I do. Okay. I, work with a lot of, I work with a lot of professors, and then I also work with a lot of quality directors and auditors at various different companies. Okay, so there's a lot of new technology in the market. Um, what new technology or soon to come to the market technology are you eager to get your hands on? Uh, so there's a couple of them and they're based on our own research that we've been funding. Um, there's been work done with atmospheric cold plasma for a number of years and I think that's one that has a lot of promise in package treatment. I've seen data on uh, produce and greens and we've done work in cheese and we've seen two, three log reductions in listeria. Okay. I don't think it's quite ready for primetime commercial yet. Uh, another that I'm even more excited about is we did a large survey of antimicrobials in queso fresco, which is really a problem in the industry to find good controls for. Right. And nothing really worked very well and kept the counts down, except for hydrogen peroxide. Good old fashioned, got it under your kitchen sink, we did a dip, we got a six log kill, and it stayed down for the entire shelf life. We've got some more work to do, but that's one I really hope to see commercialized in the next couple of years. And I think it will make that whole segment of the industry much safer. That's hydrogen peroxide in the packaging? It's actually a dip. Okay. So you would dip the cheese, you put it in the package, you seal it. Okay. Wow, that's, that's tremendous. All right, so along those lines then, if you, if you were to make a prediction, something near term, maybe three, five years in the future, something like that, what near-term prediction would you want to make about either food safety or food processing that you think we'll see in that time frame? So I think food safety has moved more in the last five years than it has in the last 50. Between FSMA and whole genome sequencing and metagenomics and some of the other new technologies, I think what we'll see, today we can search a plant and look for pathogens and when we find them we go and clean them. We have a few things that are an indicator that tell you maybe you might want to go look a little better. I think in the near future, we'll have full fingerprints and modeling and understanding of when I see this set of conditions change, now I'm two steps out in front of the pathogen and I can make the corrections and never have it even come close to being an issue. I think we're five years out from that. There, there, there's some talk along those lines about combining detection technologies along with artificial intelligence or high-speed processing to do that like you said, not only that fingerprint, but what are the two steps ahead? What are the indicators of the finger? That's, that's tremendous. Yeah, that's one I really, I think there's just an amazing amount of brain power and massive advances in the industry. I mean, just even, even what PulseNet has done in the last 10 years, right. and then to move from, from the, the gel method to whole genome sequencing and what we're seeing on recalls. Oh, by the way, we had five illnesses last week and these guys 10 years ago were related. That's an incredible learning. It may be a painful learning, right. but it really does make people have better practices. All right, terrific. Thanks for joining right, us. Thanks. Okay, so as it happens, you know, at conferences, uh, our good friends stop by, and uh, Will Daniels, uh, 
I still want to say newly with IEH. What's your official title again, Will? I am the president of the produce division for IEH Laboratories and Consulting. Nice, nice. Yeah. But I have the benefit of knowing Will for a very long time, which just makes me smile. So anyway, we're standing around here, shooting the breeze as we do, and you offered up, you know what we're not talking about? And this is, a, oh, I should, I should digress a little bit. We were, of course, talking about Yuma and produce and blockchain and all of this stuff um, and, uh, and, foods and the roots of food safety for produce. And Will said, you know what we're not talking about? And so that's what made us pick up our microphones. <laughs> yeah, well, for, let, me, let me correct you first. And, and say the desert southwest, not necessarily okay. Yuma, because okay. it's important that uh, we don't get that wrong again. Mm. Um, the issue it looked like was prevalent across the desert southwest rather than in just one one town in the in the large growing region of the desert southwest. But okay. but what we were talking about earlier really was the um, the One Health concept okay. and the the fact that um, you know E. coli. Uh, enterohemorrhagic E. coli and salmonella don't originate in the soil. They're not part of mm. a produce system other than in the uh, soil amendments, which come from the animal world. And okay. so what I was saying was, um, wouldn't it be nice if we started to talk about th that connection between the animal world and the vegetable world or fruit world and, and um, making mm. sure that we're trying to uh, do our best to keep bacterial loads as low as possible in those environments um, because ultimately they affect ours right. uh, in the produce world. Um, a great example of It is a closed system. It is a closed <laughs> system. And, you know, um, I would say that uh, when concentrated animal feeding operations were first uh, thought up, um, there was less impact. There was less um, prevalence of agricultural, uh, you know, produce and, and uh, those kind of excuse me, those kind of crops growing right next to the, uh, to the CAFOs, and now everybody's mm -hmm. got very close quarters. And um, what I was saying was if we could potentially work on the animals' well-being in those, um, in those CAFOs, uh, that perhaps we can do, we can reduce the microbial shedding events, mm -hmm. um, which in turn will lessen the impact of the environment, lessen the impact of the, the uh, the uh, waste that then gets turned into right. soil amendments and, and, you know, if we can keep the loads lower, it mm. will make all of our interventions more effective and, and benefit everybody along the way. So, in basic, my first response too when you said that about the wellness is like, and that doesn't mean more antibiotics. <laughs> no, it does not mean more antibiotics. There's a lot of really interesting technology that I've come across that will help improve the animal's health. Water, mm -hmm. water maintenance on a concentrated animal feeding operation is a great example of that, um, where today a lot of that water will go out into a settling pond and, and be reused over and over again, and, and it might not uh, lend to uh, the healthiest of animals. Right. And I know that there are systems out there that they're trying to get, get funded that, that clean that water up to a potable state. Ah. And so uh, going back to those, um, you know, those locations and, and using that water in, in those troughs, it really helps to keep the animals healthy. And the healthy animal is less stressed and less stress equals less shedding. Right, which probably leads to not only healthier um, 
protein production as well, but then healthier environments and then healthier water and healthier growing regions yes. for us. Whether we um, like it or not, we're all in this together. Yes. It's one agricultural system, and so right. we have to uh, we have to figure out how we can play in the same sandbox. Right. Well, and this sort of you know started again with the was it the canal water and stuff like that, and that's when it, the the conversation led back to just water in general, and that there are some people right now within FISMA. Who are also finding themselves, you know, the the water rule has uh, been delayed as far as the implementation of the water rule has been delayed. I believe it's two years. Correct. And uh, which we covered earlier on the podcast when that when that occurred. I mean, that's big news. It has big impacts. And and that there are people who find themselves exempt. Uh, and I don't know all the ins and outs of that, but in general, important players in that who are you know able to participate, you know, or not participate and not contribute to, you know, the health of our of our agricultural systems. Yeah, they are in that same sandbox, unfortunately, <laughs> whether we like it or and not. And they're exempt. And, People and they're in exempt. the sandbox who are and, exempt. And so, uh, you know, I think that that really comes down to um, good mentorship, good connectivity with your local community and, mm. and really leveraging, uh, you know, um, the knowledge of those that are in regulation uh, right. to those that are not because again it's about one health you know if a farm next to uh, a uh, FISMA compliant regulated farm is not following the rules there's a, a risk associated with that potentially I'm not saying right. that that you know no but it's potential but there is a potential risk there if right. they are not um, you know following the the guidelines that are set out you know uh, based in sound science and and uh creates risk if they're not following those, those well, guidelines. Well, and this kind of brings me back to some of your earlier, you know, positions, too, of, you know, being a champion uh, when you were at EarthBound for, you know, food safety and for, for doing the most that you can do all the time and not necessarily waiting for that regulation, not waiting to be forced, you know, but really understanding what, you know, what's at stake and as, as a, a steward, you know, and a part of that, how can each company do their best? Uh, obviously, there are those pressures of ROI and profitability and all of that, but, you know, yeah, not putting people at danger. Even a, if, go ahead. It's a huge challenge, certainly. Um, the uh, implications of, of margin and profitability uh, are always on the minds of the leadership of any um, sustainable company, mm -hmm. right? If you're not profitable, you're not sustainable. Right. That's the bottom line. And so uh, the challenge from the, uh, the retailers to constantly lower cost, the challenges of increased cost in the supply chain really reduce that that margin and, and make it very difficult to make um, appropriate decisions when it comes to food safety. Um, there is a lot more that you can do. When you come to a standard, um, because it is a, uh, a vetted process and a democratic process, you often are going to end up with that least common denominator, right. which, that which most people can tolerate, essentially. Right. And that might not be the best, uh, necessarily. So, um, you know, I think it's really important for, for people to um, understand and, and be cognizant of 
data that's being generated from those that are leading the mm -hmm. way and, and going beyond the standards and what are they finding, what are they seeing, and right. is there value in that for my organization? Uh, you know, a, a great example is, is around testing. You know, mm. I just came from a, uh, a, uh, a lecture that talked about the value of, of testing and, um, you know, as food scientists and food safety professionals, we were all taught that you can't test your way into safety. Mm. However, I think that in certain commodities that, that there is value in that, especially where you don't have a kill step, um, mm -hmm. it is a, an additional hurdle in that multi-hurdle approach. And um, the data just is hard to ignore at this point. Right. You, know, you look in produce, uh, in Earthbound Farm, uh, we are now 12 years away from that outbreak in 2006. And there is plenty of data to suggest that the sampling plans are valuable, that mm -hmm. we are finding contamination, and it is being removed from the uh, supply chain. Um, right. And that, I don't see who can argue that that's not a benefit. And the only way that you find that is through testing. Right. 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 I was going to say something else, too, that made me, well, first of all, you made me remember Dave Thino. Nobody cooks their salad. So we're all the way back to the first episode of yeah. <laughs> Nobody Cooks no, Their Dave. Salad. But also Dave that hopefully it. that, you know, events, and as unfortunate as it is, events like the Earthbound uh, outbreak and now uh, what's going on with the, the, this, um, the Romaine outbreak, we can, there's a lot to be learned. And so maybe this, it puts pressure on the system and hopefully there's iterations that occur based on, on outbreaks. Well, you bring up a great point. You know, the, the, the produce industry and, and specifically in, in California and Arizona have been compliant with the Leafy Greens marketing agreement that was established in, in 2007 um, that really lay out um, specific metrics for growers to follow in the fields. And the hope was that that would really be enough to prevent these type of events from mm. happening. And um, unfortunately, the data suggests that there's still more more work to be done. Right. And um, you know, that which started this conversation around ag water is a great example of right. that. Um, clearly, the 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 folks that are at the FDA trying to set that regulation have realized that there's some some challenges with setting the right standard for ag water. Um, so they've put a delay on releasing that. Right. And uh, I think that we'll find that, um, you know, those that hold standards beyond FSMA, like the Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement, will revisit mm. that as well. Mm -hmm. And potentially put more uh, emphasis on pathogen testing of that well, maybe water. this will ultimately have a very positive effect. Maybe it's a good thing then that these regs have were delayed because maybe this is going to really, you know, put more pressure on what that winds up being rather than less. If it, if I it, would agree. It was yeah. it was pretty clairvoyant for them yeah. to hold off yeah. um, because I don't think that they felt they had a solid uh, control uh, and mitigation in place. And so this is certainly going to help them solidify their position and, and what happens. That all being said, ag water is a huge challenge. I mean, there's a lot of water that's being used on a daily basis. The source of that water, where it comes from, how it's used, how it's stored, is different from farm to farm, mm. uh, region to region. And yeah. um, to lay one standard across mm -hmm. all those regions is, is certainly one of the challenges right. of many that, uh, that 
the regulatory agencies Well, then, are so then and that brings us back to, again, each company understanding the environment that they find themselves in and working hard and being willing to make the investments to do the best and use the data to, to make sure that they're mitigating everything they can. Exactly, risk assessments are extremely valuable and yeah. they shouldn't be something that is done to comply with an audit standard or anything like right. that. It should be a regular routine process in any strong food safety department. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whenever there's a question, pull out the food safety assessment uh, documentation and get to work and really understand your risk and make sure that you're communicating that not only with your direct team, but also up the chain in, of command. Right. Uh, it's really, really important that um, those that are, uh, you know, fiscally responsible for the organization understand the risks that they are yeah. uh, undertaking by whatever decisions get made. Right. Well, the cost, you know, uh, the cost of a recall, the cost of uh, an outbreak, um, you know, it's, yeah, a lot to balance. <laughs> it's it is. A, it's a lot and to balance. And it's a huge challenge yeah. if, you know, if you're the... Uh, CEO who has shareholder responsibility and you look at the occurrence rate of an outbreak yeah. Um, yeah. doesn't happen often yeah. uh, and so it becomes a risk assessment for that CEO. Yeah. Um, maybe we're just not talking about the, the, the people at the end of that, that supply chain. Uh, maybe that's we're not driving home that point enough right. and really humanizing uh, the, the, the food safety aspects of our business um, because ultimately we are feed, feeding people, we're feeding uh, you know, folks who are um, you know, part of the company's family right. Right. Um, you know, and, and the nation or the world. And, right. and so we have a responsibility as food safety professionals to make sure that we're communicating that risk all the way up. Yeah. God, well, I could just talk to you all day, but <laughs> I'm sure you have other stuff to do here. Well, it's always a pleasure. So I really great. am, uh, as I keep telling you, a huge fan of the podcast and, and really uh, I, I get something new out of every podcast. And so I, I just hope that you guys keep doing it. And, uh, you know, communication is the key here and you guys are, are leading that. Well, with fans and advocates like you, how could we possibly stop? You know, how could we go wrong? Well, you better not stop. Or and I'm most importantly, you. right, Will is a member of our editorial advisory board as well. So, you know, we got all the right folks. We know all the right people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Will. Thank you. So I'm here with Paul Kicker from USDA. So tell us a little bit about your background and how long you've been with the agency. Well, I started as a meat inspector in 1988 in the, in the plants, actually doing the inspections. So, uh, and I moved up uh, through different positions in, in the field and then eventually moved into the compliance division in their management positions. And then in the last couple of years, I've took senior executive position in Washington, D.C. So I have a very good understanding of uh, inspection from the ground floor uh, all the way up. That's great. Now, one of the things you wanted to talk with us about today was the modernization of inspection. So I wondered if you could give our listeners a little background about what this really means for the agency. So when we're talking about modernizing, we're talking about the way it is that we're currently inspecting uh, products. 
And we're not talking about giving inspection away or giving it back to the company or anything like that. And a lot of times that's what you, that's what you hear. And that's the part that they want to focus on. But what we're really talking about is the product being presented to an inspector in a little bit different manner. They still do 100% inspection of every carcass. And, and we're mandated by statute to do that. Now, how do you see uh, the changes kind of affecting what a, a company would be used to saying? What, what should they expect with these changes that are coming down? Well, the changes that we're talking about are actually to their uh, slaughter lines. So the, the changes are where the inspector sits at, the prep work that the company has to do in order to get the product ready for the inspector to uh, inspect. There's, there's not a whole lot of investment that's involved, um, but they do have to have people that are trained to do some of the preparation work that's involved. Now, I know I've, I've heard from folks that there's still some confusion about how a USDA inspection differs from an FDA inspection. So can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I'm not going to speak uh, to what it is that FDA does, but I can tell you that as far as uh, inspection from USDA, Food Safety Inspection Service, the plants that we regulate, we're in those plants every single day. We have uh, people that are in the plants, they inspect every carcass. Uh, it doesn't make any difference if it's poultry or if it's uh, beef, swine. Every single one of those is inspected. In the processing plants, we have people that are there. They go to each plant every day, but they're not necessarily there day all day long. It's more of a patrol type of setup. Mm -hmm. So what are your top priorities in terms of this modernization? Uh, I think uh, the focus for us has to be on uh, food safety and improving food safety. And this allows us to have inspectors spend more time off the line so, that, so where they can actually take a look at what's going on with the food safety system. Underneath the old uh, traditional inspection, there's a lot of time that they spend actually doing quality checks uh, for the company. Part of the modernization, the requirement is that the company takes those responsibilities back and they do their own quality check. We focus more on the safety aspects. That's great. What else can you tell us about what's going on at USDA with uh, your inspections? Well, I think uh, we're making some uh, big strides in uh, the way that the way that we do uh, pathogen sampling. Uh, we're, we're, we currently have whole genome sequencing that we're using on every single isolate uh, that we that we get from any of the regulatory samples that we take. Uh, we're taking a look at what it is that we actually uh, are sampling. What are we analyzing it for? To make sure that we have the right products and that we're analyzing for the right pathogens involved. Um, whole genome sequencing is really going to uh, give us an, a real um, specific look at pathogen and hopefully uh, uh, give us the opportunity to uh, take a look at illness outbreaks and tie them to a specific uh, plant that's, that produced that product. And when I talk to industry about this, 
I tell them that it also has the same opportunity for you to demonstrate that you're not the one that was involved in the in the uh, illness outbreaks. Because a lot of times it's you know it it's not uh, definitely black and white. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there's a lot of interpretation that goes on as far as right. um, what the what the main product was that you know that was that was the driver for the illnesses. Now, will your inspectors be looking at the environment of the plant as well, in addition to the the products? Every day, we do we do that now, and that's uh, regardless if there's any modernization that goes on or not. We do uh, sanitation in those facilities every single day, both at the beginning uh, of operations and during operations as well. Now, we've had discussions in the past on the podcast about. Um, uh, the verdict that came down with uh, Foster Farms, um, not even definitively tied to their product, um, but it, but it kind of prompted us to wonder if Salmonella might someday be labeled an adulterant in poultry like 0157 H7 is in ground beef. Do you see that coming down the pike? Well, I don't think I, I don't think I want to say that yes, I see it or no, that I don't. But I don't think you ever want to say, you know, that it's not a possibility. Uh, we we do have um, incidents where we've we're with certain plants and certain strains um, that we have declared those adulterants for that plant for specific products mm-hmm. if they've been involved in a in a illness outbreak and we were and we were able to specifically tie it to them. So there have been times when we have, but it's it's very limited. It's not general like it is for the mm-hmm. e-, e. coli 0157. I know according to uh, uh, talking to Rob Talks from CDC, that salmonella numbers have gone down. So that that's a, is a positive direction. Um, was wondering about if there are any updates uh, to the regulations for Campylobacter in poultry. We're in the process now of taking a look at uh, Campylobacter and seeing if there's a sta- you know looking at setting performance standards for that. We're doing a lot of work on that uh, right now. We're not ready to to set a standard for that now, but I think down the road uh, there definitely will be some type of a standard uh, that pertains to Campylobacter. That's great. Anything else you want to cover for our listeners today? That's, that's the most talking I can do. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Paul, it's been great to uh, speak with you this afternoon from the exhibit floor of IAFP. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. So after we stopped recording with Paul Kicker, another item came up. So, Paul, could you tell us about the survey that's uh, currently going on at USDA? Well, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, the feedback that we hear from industry is that the guidance that we put out and documents, you know, and and regulations and things like that have a lot more, uh, are a lot more relatable for uh, large plants and not and not as much for very small plants so we've really took a focus on very small plants and we have a, a survey that we've sent out to every every one of the very small and small plants and ask them for feedback uh, as far as what we could what we can do different what we can do that would uh, help them meet regulatory requirements and be able to pr- produce uh, safe 
product. So it's just recently opened in, in the last couple of weeks. It's open for 30 days, and we would really appreciate to have the feedback from them. So any, any, anyone that's out there that's a small, very small plant, we would really like to hear from them. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. So I'm sitting here today with Carmen Rotenberg. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us. And so I don't mess it up. Can you share with our audience your exact title these days? Sure. I'm the Acting Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA. Okay. And you're here today because you want to talk about a recent study that you guys have conducted on food safety, a food safety consumer research project on meal preparation uh, and related especially and at this point on thermometer use. That's right. We were conducting a meal preparation experiment specifically focused on the food safety behavior of cook, uh, meaning okay. do consumers cook their meat and poultry to the correct temperature? Do they know what the temperature, correct temperature is and do they use the meat thermometer? And right. so this is part of a broader campaign where we are doing these observational studies in order to determine whether our communications to consumers are really effective and if they really resonate with consumers. Do they change consumer practice in the kitchen? Right. Um, so it's part of a broader study that we're doing. This is one piece of it. Right. Uh, what we found in observing the cook function is that uh, people don't use meat thermometers and they also don't wash their hands. <laughs> well, but uh, in looking over the study too, and by the way, just as a little note, we did discuss this on our podcast recently. And we okay. did post it on our news. Great. And, stuff. and I noticed on there that uh, in the... In our news item, we also, you know, for people to click through to ask Karen, and something right. you probably don't know is that I'm sort of obsessed with Karen. <laughs> uh, you'll be surprised that you're in good company. There, are a lot of people are obsessed with Karen. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, is she sitting in for Karen today, or is she Karen's <laughs> boss, or you know? <laughs> but anyway, we have covered this. So our audience is a little bit familiar with okay. that. Um, but they so they did also show part of the control group. Well, they showed some people video and not some other people. Right. And some people didn't see it. The right. Video helped a little bit, but I was surprised not as much as you would think. Well, we found that twice as many people used the food thermometer yeah. uh, if they were in the test group, meaning that they received the video. So the, and and the way that the study was conducted, they actually received it ahead of time before okay. they came in. Yeah. And then they also received the video there on site. And then they still, after seeing the video. Yes went ahead and didn't follow the instructions that right. they had just seen. So yep. obviously it takes a minute to sink in on it some does. of the stuff. It does. And I think uh, when I communicate this message to my own family, I always mm -hmm. tell them, pick the thickest part of the, thickest part of the meat. Yeah. Take it off the grill, put the food thermometer in the thickest part of the meat. And so, on the side. So I, that's yeah, in the, the side, side. right, yeah. which would be the thickest part. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think communicating that, uh, we definitely learned some things about the cook step in the study in terms of consumers if they have access to it in the kitchen, right. many of them still do not use a food thermometer. Uh, and if they have access to proper instruction for where to put the food thermometer, many right. people still do not put it in that location. So this just shows that we have a lot of education still to do in this area. Well, and so we had talked about this a little bit before we started that from a producer standpoint, so for our audience, the food producers out there, is that, you know, they're 
your part, dear audience, in um, that you play a big role in what you know how they can and how much maybe you can help in educating your consumers. Right. It's a. It obviously takes a lot to break through and change behaviors. Yeah. What's really interesting is that we've done a lot of studies over the years, not but not observational studies. So meaning that we would send out questionnaires to consumers. And what's really interesting is that consumers over-report their food safety behaviors. So they see the food (laughs) safety behaviors and they want to say, yes, I'm doing all of these things. Of course I am. And I own a food thermometer. And then they don't. And so that's why these observational studies are really important. If a consumer doesn't know that they're being watched for food safety behaviors, Mm. and in this case, they thought that they were preparing a new recipe. Oh, So what do they do? What do they do? And um, and, and it really, it, we didn't see a difference necessarily between those that are in urban and rural areas. Okay. Um, and we'll have a fuller report coming out later this summer, but our initial indications are that people don't properly wash their hands in 97% of the times when they had to wash them, meaning before they started meal prep and then after handling raw meat and poultry. Right. Uh, and then also that they many participants did not use a food thermometer. From the control group, the vast majority did not use it. From the test group, the majority used it, but many did not use it correctly. Well, our editor, Barbara, loves to tell the story that they asked last year at IAFP, you know, how many people here, and this is food safety professionals, how many people use a thermometer? I mean, like only half the room or less than half the room said that they did. So I think a lot of people, I guess, feel like they know what they're doing. It's like, well, what do you mean? I'm a cook. I've been doing this for, you know, 100 years and nobody dies. Yes. Uh, Yes. And isn't that the question all of our family members ask? I know that's the question all my family members ask. Uh, Don't thaw my meat on the counter. What are you talking about? I've done that my whole life. You can't thaw your meat on the counter. You have to put it in thought in the refrigerator or in the microwave. But that's really what we're up against. You know, I was asked an interesting question uh, in this past week about this study, which is what role do celebrity chefs play in promoting good food safety practices? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think anyone who's on TV, you know, my kids, I have three young children, they love watching these food programs on TV. And I do think that it's incumbent on any food professional uh, and any chef that's going to be on TV where their audience is going to be... People who are preparing food yeah. or children, want, they're yes. taking their cue. That's right. Yeah. They're taking their cue yeah. from those. And so yeah. I, I really makes me cringe when I see, uh, you know, these uh, a steak, uh, steak stuffed with cheese. And then the celebrity chef says, cook it to 125 or something yes. like that. You know, it really makes me cringe. Um, but that's what we're up against in terms of messaging. And I think and washing the hands between every yes, part of it, too. Right. It's like that thing of, okay, we're done with this. And then Barbara was pointing out the whole condiment thing. Yes. So there's a lot of that that goes right. on with, with right. um, so modeling good yes. behavior. Exactly. And and there's only so much time in a segment. And so the, the chef very well may have washed his That's or her true. hands. Yeah. But you're not seeing it on TV. And so mm-hmm. even just a simple mention of make sure you wash your hands yeah. between. Uh, but that's something else that was interesting in, in the study is that that the salt and pepper shakers, 50% of participants contaminated. Yeah. I mean, that had a very high, we used a tracer microorganism yeah. that acts just like a human pathogen right. to in order to trace where the 
bacteria moves in the kitchen. Your hands are the vectors. Yeah. And so 50% um, touch those salt and pepper and stay at a high kitchen, load. And then the kitchen and then the refrigerator yes. door, which made me think, oh, I'm going to be getting at that more often. Right. That's right. <laughs> and really, that's that's right, getting at it. So really disinfecting your surfaces yeah. and including both your faucets and your yeah. uh, refrigerator handles is absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. how about your mobile phone? So we found on devices, oh, too. Oh, sure. Because a lot of people, too, are using those to, they're yes. using those for recipes. That's you right. know, their, their, their I iPads do, right? and their phones and yes. stuff. Sure, I do, too. Right. Yeah. So. As little as I cook, even I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, same. Not, not a huge cook, but anyway. <laughs> right. Um, but now it seems like this is part one. I mean, there were a lot of iterations, and right. so it's a five-year study. You guys are going to continue to do this? Right. Or? So it's really testing out, doing observations on the four steps, which okay. are clean, cook, chill, separate. Uh, yeah. That's the one that we were saying to our audience, you know, we should all know this, you know, yeah. like, you know, 3 a.m., you know, right. what are, what are yes. the four steps? Yes. So cook, I see, it's clean, I forget clean, them. separate, cook, chill. Clean, separate, cook, chill. Clean your hands, this. your hands and your surfaces, not the poultry or the meat, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that's another thing. People yeah. want to always wash their chicken. Yes. Why do they want to wash their chicken? <laughs> because their grandmothers wash their chicken. Yes, we've all seen yes. in the turkey in the sink. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it can splash the bacteria. Yes. So. Yeah. But I think this is helpful for producers to, um, to see that there's still work to do for all of us to do yeah. in educating consumers. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. And really those numbers, yes, they went up for the control group, but you would have thought that it would have been... Yes, near 100% uh, Yeah, or near something. 100%. And it was not. So this is the first step. And right. so what's the uh, timeline for the rest of the study? Or Yeah, so we, we have several more? different um, observations that we're doing. We're working with RTI and North Carolina right. uh, State University in order to have these studies done. And I don't want to yeah. say too much so okay. that people don't you know don't suspect that it's coming because it has gotten a lot of media attention but the goal is really to find out what kind of guidance could the agency maybe put out to right. industry so that they would know what might be helpful to consumers yes um, and safe handling instructions you know we've had that out for a while in terms of the rulemaking process for update for the safe handling instructions but is there other are there other things that the industry might want to do not necessarily that they would be required mm. to do but they might want to do that right. that might be informative are there ways that industry can partner with you I mean you're this yeah. is yeah they I mean they industry does yeah. uh, they come in and talk to us about new things that they're trying out on packaging and okay. ask for what we've heard from consumers. And so we do a lot of that now. Consumers, the consumer groups tell us that um, the package needs to have a more prominent label of the safe handling instructions. Yes. And even where it's not required, many companies already do larger safe handling instructions, you know, but it really yeah. runs the gamut. Of, I don't really notice it too yes, much. I have to tell you, right, I don't. Right, right. So, yeah. and I think that that's true of, of a lot of people. Yeah. That, um, but do they not notice it because you're not looking for it or just because you tear open the package of chicken and just start cooking it, yeah. you know, which is probably the category I'm I I'm probably not into. a good control group for you on this, though, because I'm vegetarian, so oh. I'm, not, I'm not tearing okay. open any chicken right, packages. Right. Okay, that's, yeah, but, so uh, maybe not. Yeah. But the, the the labels really run the gamut of packaged in a establishment and yeah. then packaged at a deli counter. Yeah. So it can really run the right. gamut of these different. And so there's 
they're always there, but yeah. in what place and in what color and things. There are some requirements for that. Right. Um, and our consumers trained to really look for those. Right. Yeah. That's right. So it takes a long time. That's right. It yeah. takes education. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yep. So there's more to come. There's going to be how many more segments of this? Oh, for each one. So the four steps. Right. So we, this is yes. the first one. Yes. Cook. That's right. Although we got some of the clean in there, the too. The clean is in there. <laughs> yeah. Because it's probably in there, you know. We'll look at that throughout the yeah. throughout all of yeah. them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, is there anything you. else that you needed to say no, or get I out? No, that's it. Okay. All right. I hope that maybe we can, I don't know, maybe when the next segments come out, we can we can do this We'd again. Lo- I'd love we to. Love part, you know, we love being able to help you get the message out. Great. Right. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Tim Stubbs, Will Daniels, Paul Kicker, and Carmen Rotenberg for sitting down with us at IAFP. And thanks to all of you who stopped by or sent your colleagues. And thanks to all of you for listening and being a part of this community. I do need to make a little correction here. In my conversation with Will Daniels, I mentioned that the ag water rule had been delayed for two years. I was wrong. I know. It's, it's really hard to believe. I'm confounded, but it's actually been it's actually been delayed for four years until 2022. For all the links from this episode, use the show notes in your podcast player, or you can find them on our website at foodsafetymagazine.com slash podcast, and then find episode 30. We've talked a lot about the community that we're creating here with the podcast that you're a part of. So reach out. We want to get to know you, and there are lots of cool ways for you to do that. And here's a great one. Use the voice memo app on your phone to record a message. Tell us about yourself, about your role in food safety, maybe where you are in the, in the supply chain, what category of food or beverage you're working with, your challenges and successes. Now, you don't need to put all of that in one me- message, but, you know, feel free to, you know, let us get to know you. Then email that to podcast at foodsafetymagazine.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at Food Safety Mag, or of course on Facebook. Now, every episode I encourage you to subscribe. So I'm going to assume that you've done that. Now, how about rating the podcast? If you want, you can write a review. We're not going to complain. So to give us a rating, go to the podcast page in your player, and then all you have to do is decide on how many stars you want to give us. I'll thank you now. That's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on August 14th. We'll talk to you then.